welcome back to the user flows podcast my name is thomas morell and i'll be your host user flows podcast is a place where we talk about ux design and careers today is going to be a little bit different we're talking to a founder so stephen khan he's a father a husband and a serial entrepreneur which is why i'm talking to stephen today so stephen has a marvelous track record of starting and selling fantastic digital companies uh, for those of you in the UX space, you'll know his last venture, Validately, which made it you know, really easy and affordable to conduct lean customer research on new digital products. Validately has since been acquired by UserZoom, and prior to launching Validately, Stephen sold his first two startups to Living Social and TripAdvisor. So he's three for three on growing and selling uh, very successful companies. He also worked at DoubleClick, Quantcast, and IBM, so he's perfect person to talk to. Um, he is a graduate of George Washington University and Harvard Business School. Now, I'm convinced that every designer dreams of starting their own product one day, and I'll not be shy about the fact that I have that same dream. So one of the great things about starting a podcast like this is you get to talk to really cool people who do the things that you want to do or have done the things that you want to do. So I'm really excited to talk to Steven today. As, as I said, he's three for three in creating extremely useful, successful, and also profitable products. Steven is going for his fourth startup success with his latest and greatest company, Impact Product. Impact Product helps designers and product people alike make data-informed design decisions, uncover usability issues faster, all without developer support. The entire tool right now is offered as a Chrome extension. I installed it on my personal site. It took all of seconds to install and seems super easy to use thus far. So it's a great conversation. I cannot thank Steven enough for sharing all of his wisdom as well as his time with us today. And here's the conversation. Enjoy. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, thank you. Uh, today I have Stephen Kahn on the line. And Stephen is a father, husband first, and a serial entrepreneur as well. So Stephen is the founder of Validately, which was acquired by UserZoom. And I believe that's how we got connected originally. I think I was trying to get Validately installed in a company I was working at. And uh, you've been very mm -hmm. gracious to uh, accept this request to talk. So you also have a new product coming out, um, Impact Product, that's right. which mm -hmm. I just installed on my personal site. Um, really simple, uh, easy to yeah. use, looking great so far. So we'll definitely get into that. Um, could you just give us a little background into you know who you are and what you're doing? Yeah, um, yeah. So my, as you said, my kind of my personal motto is I, I try hard to be a, a great father, husband, and entrepreneur. That's my yeah. uh, my pecking order. Um, and uh, so I'm a four-time entrepreneur, uh, business-wise. Um, my last company was a user research UX testing platform called Validately, uh, where I started it from you know, just myself and a couple of developers and, and uh, then my co-founder, uh, Mark Bathy joined um, shortly after we got started. And, um, you know, very scrappy product focused founder. Um, I've, uh, you know, um, just have a process that, you know, I follow and I focus on building products, trying to understand customer needs. And, um, you know, I, I keep doing it because I love it. It's my favorite part of, uh, of businesses just building building products that uh, customers love. Oh, that's fantastic! And was you know this always the kind of dream from the <clears> beginning, <throat> or is this something you stumbled into? Yeah, great question. Um, actually, my my I, my grandfather was a great entrepreneur, and my father was was a, a longtime entrepreneur as well. Uh, had some successes as well, and um, so growing up, 
I uh, really always had the perspective of a business owner and an entrepreneur. That they, neither of them were in technology, um, okay. but um, but still kind of the same kind of concept of of uh, trying to build a great a business around a great product, bringing it to market, finding customers, um, all that stuff. So we used to talk about it when I was younger, and I always thought it was uh, you know an, an awesome thing and. Um, and so I always knew I wanted to to be an entrepreneur, be a business owner at some point. Yeah. And uh, but early in my career, I did some other jobs just to basically learn some some basic skills, the important skills that I thought would be helpful for me as a as a founder one day. Okay. And then in uh, 2006, I finally took the plunge, my first my first startup. Oh, fantastic! And what do you think those skills were? What are the most important skills you think to uh, being a founder? Well. So there's there's soft skills and hard skills. But I think the 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 soft skills are probably the most important. Um, and uh, you know, I think my perspective. Uh, you know, look, there's not one answer to this. This is my perspective. Um, mm-hmm. What I believe, uh, based on my experience, what I think works. So first of all, I have a saying when it comes to startups, which is. Uh, Every problem your startup has, every question your startup has, the answer is product, right? So whatever it is, if you're not growing fast enough, it's product. If you're not, if your cost of user acquisition is too high, it's product. It's not marketing. If your sales cycle is too long or conversion rate is too is too low, it's product. Um, if uh, if um, if your if your uh, you know churn rate is too high, it's product, etc. So uh, I believe deeply that. Uh, the core of successful uh, technology startups and probably extends beyond technology comes back to product um, and really understanding product culture, what it mean, what product culture means, um, what a, a product focused organization means uh, and prioritizing that, uh, understanding that. I think discipline is extremely important. Focus is extremely important. Um, I am relentlessly focused, uh, ruthless, uh, ruthless focus is, is the phrase I use um, to the point where even if you have a really good idea, if it's, if it's off topic, um, I'll, I'll cut it off. I'll, I'll just cut it off and say, great idea. Not, a, not where, we're, where we're going. Let's, let's park that for later. Um, I'm not trying to be dismissive, but I don't want to chase this shiny object over here. I want to stay focused on solving this problem. Um, so, so focus, uh, uh, and one of the kind of biggest lessons that I've learned the, you know, and it, it, I kind of dawned on me in my, um, in my early days of validately when we were struggling was, um, I used to think when I was an early founder that it was all on me, that I had to come up with the answer. I had to come up with the right thing for marketing or the right thing for product or the right thing for sales or the right answer for all this stuff. And the thing that I kind of learned um, and it became a magical, you know, kind of learning moment for me was actually my job as a founder is not to always come up with the right answer. It's to create a culture and environment where the people feel, uh, my, my team feels connected to what we're doing knowledgeable about what we're doing, knowledgeable about where the business is and what we're trying to do with the business and empowered 
to try to um, you know solve the business problems you know by them on the on themselves without the founder giving them the answer. And <clears throat> so I once I realized that um, I I basically have built my my teams my culture with my product around that kind of philosophy of empowering teams to um, to solve problems and to know the outcomes of their problems of their efforts um, good or bad and have this kind of learning experimentation culture and um, and that was the biggest thing that I I kind of you know learned uh, and has helped me be a found, multiple time founder okay love that and I did see that you had gone to Harvard as well, the business school, right? MBA? Harvard Business School. Yep. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like going into being a founder, is that, does that help? Or did you learn a lot more just, you know, starting these companies? So it's actually, it's a great question. And it's a, um, it's a, a, it's a hot topic. Everyone has an opinion on business school, whether you need business school or not. I, I can tell you for me personally, everyone's different. Mm-hmm. I loved, loved going to Harvard Business School. I, I think I learned a ton. Um, I think I built great connections that have helped me throughout business and be more successful. Um, I learned a lot about uh, product strategy and corporate strategy that we had that are lessons that I've applied uh, in all my businesses and my my fund, you know, foundational thinking about about starting a company. Um, from my perspective, for me personally, it was it was an, you know, home run experience, but it's not for everyone and everyone, and there's no one path to success. There's many different paths to success. Mm-hmm. Um, so for other people, it might not, it might not be, there might be other people who say, eh, I went to the school and it wasn't really helpful. Um, for me personally, I had a, I had a great experience and it's helped me. Fantastic. Okay. And that's, I often wonder if, you know, maybe I need to go back. And I think a lot of people out there wonder the same thing, whether they should just, you know, march forward with their idea or, you know, first go get some schooling. So I appreciate that. And getting back to, you had mentioned the focus, kind of knowing when to move forward with an idea or when to put it on the back burner. How do you validate between or determine whether it's a great idea that, you know, could possibly be successful or, whether or not it's just another idea. What's the kind of yeah, process you question. take for that? Yeah. It's a great question. So whenever I start a company, um, the thing that I focus on, um, and um, a, a guy named Dan Olson um, wrote, um, I, I speak, spoke a lot and has written um, uh, you know, books on this. Um, I think his book was The Lean Product Playbook. And um, he's a, he has a phrase that I, I steal a lot, which is that there's, um, there's the, the problem space and the solution space. And I think one of the biggest mistakes that first-time founders make, and it's usually first-time founders because they learn this the hard way and then you don't make this mistake again, is they jump right into the solution space. They, they think about a problem and they don't fully understand it and then they jump right into like this beautifully designed solution. And they spend a whole lot of time building this really beautiful thing that no one needs. And it's beautiful and it's amazing. And all their friends say it's awesome, but then no customers actually use it. And, um, and the reason why that is, is because they didn't fully understand the problem space. And so when I start a company, the, the, what I try to do is deeply, deeply understand um, the problem space. I spend, I spend a ton of time on that. And it's the same thing when I'm 
not just when I'm launching new products within within uh, my prior company, Validately, for example, um, you know, or my new company, because um, whether it's new features uh, or new companies, it doesn't matter. It's the same approach. I do a tremendous amount of user research to try to understand the problem space and why this problem exists, how important it is to solve, and why do the current products in the market uh, not solve these needs? And um, in a lot of, in some cases, they'll say, oh, I didn't know about this product. This actually looks like it does solve my need. And then they'll, they'll say, okay, well, um, maybe there's not an opportunity here. Um, but in a lot of cases, when you'll talk to them and they'll say, yeah, we've tried that product. It didn't work for us. We tried this other product. It didn't work for us. Great. Why not? Tell me why not? Why is this not working? What, are the, what, is, the, what is blocking? And, um, and if you do that enough, you'll find... Uh, you know, you'll really uh, deeply understand the problem space. And then once you, once you get that, once you really think you understand, uh, then the process is, you know, a, a series of, of prototype and prototype testing. For validation, I say there's three levels of validation that I apply to understanding if I'm working on an important problem and if the solution that we're working on um, is going in the right direction. Um, the first level is your time commitment. So I will have a hypothesis of who my customer is. I reach out to those, those personas on uh, LinkedIn. LinkedIn has great kind of targeting. And I send them a very basic message. Hi, I'm Stephen Cohen. I'm, I'm a multiple time founder. I'm, I'm starting a new company to solve this problem. Um, I'd love to talk to you about it if, if you're interested. And what I have found with that basic message is, especially I do it through LinkedIn because then they can see like, I'm not some spammer. Like I'm like a real person that went to Harvard Business School, like a legit human and, um, you know, not just, you know, some, you know, spam farm. And, um, and I'm trying, and I'm a multiple time entrepreneur and they can see that, that I have some credibility there and that, and they're like, actually, this is a problem. And so the first thing I want to know is like, is this a problem significant enough from who, who I think is my target customer that they're willing to spend 30 minutes of their time talking about the current problem, right? And, um, and I have found that process to be very successful. The next level is if they say, yes, there's a problem, and, I, and then I could show them a prototype. The next level is, uh, so time, then there's um, social, what I call social. So social proof is getting that person taking the next steps, whether if it's a B2B product, internally taking the next steps, if, if it's a consumer product, potentially cons uh, other friends, but to, to get that software installed, to, to get that software employed within your product, within your company, okay? So to do that, you got to put your credibility on the line. You got to go to legal to get uh, approval for it. You got to go to your boss to get budget for it or whatever it is, right? No, if they, if, if, they answer my LinkedIn cold outreach and they take, a, they take a meeting with me and then they see a demo of a solution, even if it's a prototype. And if it seems like it's moving in that right direction where they feel like there's value creation for a true problem, that customers will absolutely, even with just a prototype, will take those next steps to be a beta partner for you because they, 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 the pain is so great that this thing, if it works, if you could actually make the software to do what this prototype does, Awesome. Home run. Like it, it really solves a problem. Yeah. The third, the third level is budget. 
So I ask him for your time. I ask him for your social proof. And then I ask you for budget. Can you commit to spending money on, this is the price point. When we go live, this, you'll have you know, a, a trial period. Beyond, mm-hmm. After that trial period, this is the price. Can you commit to, to paying these prices, depending upon delivery and a successful pilot? And I think one, one of the mistakes entrepreneurs make is they don't ask, they don't talk about price. They don't talk about budgets uh, early enough. So I think you want to talk about that up front. You want to understand, is this a thousand dollar a month problem, a hundred dollar a month problem, a $10,000 a month problem? Like how big is this problem for you? Um, and that's important because that determines your go to market strategy. That determines your scalability, capital raising, all that stuff. So those are the three levels I start. I first, I dig deep on the problem space, understand it. I use people, I ask for people's time. Then I ask for their social proof. Uh, and then I ask for budget. And I do all that, even with early stage prototypes or very basic, um, you know, uh, work, you know, very basic kind of alpha version of a product. Okay, fantastic. And so you, you mentioned something really interesting, which I haven't seen many people do, and that's the budget aspect. Uh, mm-hmm. How do you go about coming up with a range of where you'd even price a product like this, like when it's just prototype stage, is it just trial and error or? Yeah, it's a great, it's it's a great, um, great question. I love the conversation of pricing. Um, From my perspective, pricing is probably the topic that the the one thing in business that is the easiest thing to change and has the biggest impact on your business metrics like it's just amazing uh, because there's like no developer support needed right you just change a number on the website right it's super easy if you have stripe uh, uh, you know you can just change it in the ui so um uh but okay so how do you figure out pricing so first of all you know you can start with looking at comp- competing solutions and what where they are um you want to understand uh pricing but there's a there's a uh, a great blog on pricing called price intelligently um and i think they actually just rebranded a little bit but it used to be price intelligently and um and they talk a lot about a thing called a value metric so a value metric is a a um a match a usage metric that as it increase as the customers increase that that their the customer's value increases okay so let me give you like, I think the quintessential example, um, MailChimp prices based on the size of your email list, not on sends, not on user seats. I mean, I think on later plans, they might have user seat, but that's the, but the bulk of their pricing is on the size of your email list. The bigger your email list, the, the higher price point. And there's a slider on their pricing page. So if your email list is 10,000, 15, 20,000, 100,000, whatever. Um, that's a value metric. And what's, what's great about that is every company in the, every customer that MailChimp has, has at least one, if not multiple people focused on how do they grow their fees to MailChimp? I mean, they don't even know it. That's not really what they're focused on. They're focused on growing their email list, but ultimately what they're really doing is by growing their email list, they're growing the fee and the, and MailChimp has so aligned their, their price to customer value that customers don't care that they're paying more because they're, they believe they believe they're getting more value. Now they're, they're not pricing based on sends. So you can send as much as you, you can send every single day, you can send an email 
or you could send one email every three months. If your list is 10,000 people, it's the same price, right? So MailChimp says, I'm not trying to stop you from using my product. I want you to use as much as possible. No price as much as you want. But your value metric is total size of your email list. And I'm going to price based on that. And so um, if you price based on a value metric where the customer increases value for every time, uh, as the customer increases value, their price goes up, um, then, uh, then that makes a lot of sense. And you know, another classic example is like Dropbox, right? The more storage, the more you pay. Yeah, pretty straightforward. Okay, perfect. Um, so let's go, I guess, maybe through it, uh, or for example, to get a, a sense of your process. So mm-hmm. how would you mentor somebody like me? So I have say a product idea it's again mm-hmm. in the UX space and it's kind of focused around helping designers, product teams decide what kind of design thinking workshop to run, depending on, you know, which part of the, you know, uh, product life cycle they're in and very simple yeah. tool. Um, you know, I have some money saved to do this. I do have a full-time job, mm-hmm. but I have an understanding mm-hmm. wife who's going to let me you know, work <laughs> early mornings and mm-hmm. late nights and some weekends. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you, what would your process be for, I guess, you know, starting this and hopefully scaling it? It's a great question. Um, uh, and the first thing is that's great is that you're asking this before, you, you know, you've kind of gotten too far because oftentimes uh, I do a lot of uh, mentoring for, for entrepreneurs and oftentimes they come to me after the thing's already built and they're like, well, no one's using it. What, how can you help me? And I'm like, well, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm not a magician. You know what I mean? Like uh, yeah. I have a process, but it's not, you know, it's not magic. So uh, I, I, the process I would do is exactly as I said before, create a list of who you think your persona is, mm-hmm. uh, who your buyer is, um, reach out to them on LinkedIn. Hi, introduce, you know, this is the problem I'm trying to solve. I'm building software to solve this problem. Um, you know, I have a lot of experience in this space. I'd love to talk to you about how you guys do it. And if this is a problem for you, you will be pleasantly surprised and happy with if you're, if people think that's a problem, they will absolutely respond and say, sure, I'd love to chat about it. Um, and if no one responds, um, then either a, um, you have the, you pick the wrong persona and you keep trying experimenting with different personas. And again, um, you know, LinkedIn has this tool called Sales Navigator, which for like $50 a month, you have a whole lot of filtering on, you could do company size, you could do geography, you can do, you know, job title, you can do all kinds of filtering, and then you could just send mm-hmm. them a message. <clears throat> you know, not long, very short. Here's my name. Here's the problem I'm solving. Do you have some time to chat? Um, if, um, if you actually get a problem that they have, um, they will respond and set up meetings. Take those meetings, take those user interviews, understand how they do this now. What are the pains they have? What are the things they hate? Um, what are the things that they you know, love about their process? Um, do they use any tools? What do they like about those tools? What do they hate about those tools? Really, really, really understand the problem space and why the problem exists across a couple of, you know, across many different users. Don't be in a rush to jump right into a software product. Okay, a solution. Okay. Um, for my current company, Impact Product, my new one, um, yep. I did over 300 customer interviews, 300 wow. user interviews um, over, over like a six, nine month period. Um, and it's all the same process. But what I was looking for is I've spoken to, um, uh, you know, 
impact products and analytics tool built for design teams. What I found is that design teams uh, basically almost never use the company's analytical tools to understand what's going on within a company. And it doesn't matter whether that company has Mixpanel or Heap or Amplitude or Looker or Tableau or Google Analytics or Pendo or whatever it is. Design teams will never log in and use that. So they don't understand. Most of them can't answer, you know, the thing that you worked six weeks on designing and testing and all that stuff. Are people using it? Are they getting stuck somewhere in the flow? Like, are they falling off? Like, what's going on, right? Um, What percentage are you using it? The people who use it, are they reusing it more than once? Is it like one time and then they leave it alone and they abandon it? Mm -hmm. Those basic questions, which every analytical tool out there can answer, um, never get used by design teams to, to answer those questions because why, why is that? And, um, you know, so I reached out to a whole bunch of design teams and said, this is the problem I'm trying to solve. And I've had phenomenal response rates from, uh, com- uh people. Now, part of it is also, you know, Hey, I love validately, you know, if you're making something uh, new, I'd love to talk to you because I know you make a good product. But also part of it is, yes, this is a problem, like understanding the impact of design, um, under, you know, getting basic access to analytical analytics um, is very, is a a very important part of, of, uh, you know, understanding outcomes uh, for design teams. And, um, and so when I did my interviews, and I took spoke to companies you know, that, that have uh, mixed panel and amplitude and heap and looker and Tableau and Google analytics and Alpendo and all those products. Mm-hmm. I heard the same two problems there over and over again. Um, requirement for developer support to instrument every little button or thing that I want to get, you know, that's a bottleneck for design teams. They don't have access to developers. In most cases, they have to go through product. They have to wait in line, et cetera. By the time they get the, the thing tagged up, then they have to wait for the data to run you know, they might be moved on. It's too late. And the second is just the complexity of the user experience for those analytical tools uh, creates a lot of friction for design teams. Um, and so because those tools are designed for, not designed for design teams, they're designed for data scientists, quant, analytical, uh, analytically trained people, people who are trained in analytics. And very few design designers are trained on analytics. Um, and and quant, and most of most of their training is in qual, and that's that's kind of their empathy driven, you know, and understanding the user and all that type of stuff. Um, and so, qual research is awesome. Believe me, I love I love qual research, and you know, I sold validate to user Zoom, which is a great product. And if you want qual research, that's a that's the right product for you. For quant, for analytics, for measuring what's going on in the product. Um, you know, there just has never been a tool designed for understanding the designer and what they're what what they need, and um, and so that's what we're doing. So so we, you know, and I and I uncovered that from consistent messages, hearing back from my user interviews, and then we did some prototype testing. We go back to them and say, "Here's an idea of what we had." Then we could put like a an MVP. Very you know, I know that's a that's a, a word that is hotly contested. <laughs> I don't mean to dig scratch that itch but we put a very kind of low friction very basic product out there and you know had some customers test it out and try it and the feedback's been good and then we worked on a a, a new version which we just released last week a a 2.0 version which better design more features all that stuff 
and now we're just we're we're continuing to kind of go out and and talk to teams and and get them to try it out and and learn feedback what what's missing you know what what's confusing what's you know confusing about the user experience and going from there fantastic and so obviously you had this idea you went out you talked to 300 people which is a lot <laughs> that's impressive yeah um and now it comes time to build uh, how do you go about, I guess, you know, bringing in the right technology talent or the right type of people <clears throat> tech stack in order to kind of, you know, surround yourself and set yourself up for a success? Yeah. Um, so it's a great, it's a great question. Um, so again, I, I have a p- opinion. I'm not saying my way is the only way, right? I, I'm not saying there aren't other successful approaches. I have an opinion and my opinion is big teams build big products, not necessarily better products. And Mm -hmm. so when you have a small team, you're forced to prioritize. And my view is that specifically with B2B products, okay? Um, But it probably extends to consumer products as well. My view is that, that there's one dominant, powerful use case for every successful product. And then there's a whole bunch of stuff built around it. But mm-hmm. that one early product market fit comes down to like kind of one just powerful, awesome use case. And, um, and th- from that, you raise capital, you build this whole big team, you build this whole stuff. And, and you know, and I look at, I, I would say, look at, look at Twitter. Twitter. Twitter's MVP was like a basic, like, it was a text message on the internet, basically. That's what it was, 140 characters, uh, you know, very basic thing. Twitter has probably spent billions, tens of billions of dollars over the, uh, maybe, maybe more, maybe hundreds of it over the, over the, you know, their course of their life. And at the end of the day, it all comes back to the tweet, right? I mean, all this stuff is just all around the tweet. Now, I'm not, I'm not including the monetization piece for the ad business or whatever, but the core value prop of Twitter is the tweet, which was in the MVP. Um, and it's the same thing for, for B2B products. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so it's, it's that one thing. And if you understand what that is, you don't need a huge, massive engineering team. Okay. Um, and, um, and, you know, the other thing that I, I, I focus on with my, with my companies uh, is um, I don't believe in, like, story points and velocity and all that stuff, okay? Um, it's not about building more stuff. It's not, it's not a race to see who can code more, right? Um, it's understanding the stuff that we're building. Are people using it? And if they're not, why are they not? Because it's based on user research. We talk to them. They said they need this. We, get, we build it for them, are they, and they're not using it. Why not? I don't want to just say, well, we checked it off the roadmap, so let's build the next thing on the roadmap, right? Mm-hmm. It's just trying to un- stay on that thing and try to understand how do we get people doing it. You know, with Validately, when I started Validately, which is a, it's a qual user research tool, um, user testing was was already pre-established, but user testing at that time was only unmoderated and only on their panel. Mm-hmm. And when I talked to to um, 
research teams and design teams, the problem with that, that is sometimes you want to talk to your own users and sometimes you want to do moderated. And yeah. so, um, and so, you know, they didn't, they didn't have, they were back then they were using to, to, to find out, you know, to talk to your own users, it was, it was pain. You had to try to get a, um, you know, an email list from marketing, which is always hard or whatever it is. Um, or you would put a, uh, an ad up on Craigslist, right. Um, mm-hmm. which was a pain. And then you would use uh, Skype was like the main tool at the time. You know, this was before Google Hangouts or whatever was popular and, and, uh, Zoom. Mm-hmm. And, um, the problem that they had was they couldn't, it was, uh, after they did the interviews when they had to download the videos and create little highlight clips and annotated notes and all that stuff. Um, that's where all the pain was. So it wasn't in the generic just screen sharing. Mm-hmm. The pain that these researchers had when I started Validately was after it was done, how do I turn all that that I just did, my six user interviews, into something that I can explain to my team, here's the key points, right? You're not going to watch six hours or three hours of interviews. Mm-hmm. I already did that. I need to synthesize this for you. And so the kind of the, the big powerful thing that basically from that, from these two, there was two features with Validately that I was sure all these other tools were going to copy, but they never did. The two features we had is we made it super simple. So we did, we had moderated technology, mm-hmm. which was, which was good technology, but not no different than any other video conferencing tool. But the two features that we had that research, research teams loved easy video clips, so literally just click, little scrubber, create the clip, and annotated notes. Married that with a, an easy way to do it if you have your own list mm-hmm. or our own panel, a panel, which was, you know, a, com- a com- panel of companies are a commodity. And yeah. so the, that, that use case was, you know, we built a successful business off of just that use case. Um, and so... If you, so coming back to your question on engineering teams, I don't think you need a big engineering team. I think mm-hmm. if you have one back end, great backend person and one great front end dev um, and a great designer um, and, a, and a, a product focused, go to market focused founder, you can, you can build an awesome company from there. I think that's really a, a, a core founding team, a, mm-hmm. a great designer, a, a great backend engineer, a great front end engineer um, and, uh, and, a, and a product focused, you know, go to market focused, um, either, either founder or, or co-founder type of person. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and that's it. And so you just, you just, it forces prioritization. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, that's a extremely lean team. I like the sounds of that. You know, I've been working at, you know, very yeah. large organizations. So that sounds <laughs> exciting. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, you also, you have some pretty great advisors on your team. It sounds like for impact product, um, Jeff, yeah. uh, Gothelf, um, you know, writer of a number yeah. of the kind of industry standard books. Um, how did those relationships come about? Yeah. So Jeff Gothelf and Josh Seiden uh, and uh, Becky Buck also yep. uh, are advisors. Um, uh, so, um, Jeff, uh, was an advisor to Validately as well. Okay. And I actually met him at, um, uh, oh man, uh, what was that conference in, uh, in Austin, the tech conference? Oh, in South Austin. by Southwest. Um, 
So, yeah, South by yeah. So actually, I went to a I went to a uh, when I was starting validately. Uh, he, he was given a presentation at South by. I went up to him afterwards and I introduced myself and I said, I'm working on this problem, uh, almost like I do in LinkedIn. I'm, I'm working on this problem. I'd love to talk to you about it. And he said, that sounds interesting. And here's my, here's my email, shoot me an email. And I, from there, I talked to him. I showed him a demo. I, I said, I, I want you on my advisory board. I want to give you equity in my company. He said, sounds good. And we had a great working relationship. Uh, his partner through <clears throat> all, many of his books is Josh Seiden, who's written, written a number of books, including Lean UX with co-author Lean UX. He also wrote uh, outputs, uh, Outcomes Not Outputs, or Outcomes Over Outputs, um, which is a great book. Um, and I highly recommend that. It's a short book. Um, I actually got it on audio. Uh, I got the book on tape. And I, I put it on 1.5 speed and I walk around my neighborhood and I finished it in like, you know, two walks. It, it was, yeah. uh, but it's, it's a powerful book. It's a great book. And, um, uh, and so I, there are natural fits. Um, Becky is awesome. She was one of my first customers at Validately uh, from a big company. She was at Salesforce at the time. And she's just an early, just like she loves products. She loves design. She loves founders and um, just a great person to talk to. And so she's been working with us on the design and the product and stuff like that. Um, and so like, I, I think that like um, the thing I've learned about advisors are the reality is most of the time advisors add very little to any value um, uh, for, a, okay. for a startup. Um, this, it really comes down to how you structure the advisory relationship. If you just want a headshot to put on your uh, website, mm -hmm. um, it's really not w worth much to the startup. Um, gotcha. you know, it's, you're not going to get much value out of just a headshot of a, of an advisor on your, on your website. Um, it has a little bit of credibility, but at the end of the day, it's not why people make purchase decisions. Um, so you have to ask your advisors to to provide value, right? And like, what what can they do to provide value? Well, either they have domain expertise that, and they have to, but you have to get them to commit to it. So in the advisor agreements, you have to say, hey, you got to meet with me X number of times a month, a quarter, a year, whatever it is, right? That's mm -hmm. the agreement that you're agreeing to. Um, uh, have that conversation up front with your advisors. Um, and put it in writing. So they have to sign in writing that this is what they're agreeing to from a commitment perspective. Social, obviously a lot of them have a lot of, of followers in your area, right? Makes um, sense, yeah. get their commitment to share, share your social posts uh, into their community. Right. Um, and so it's better to have fewer advisors, but ones that are deeply committed to your success. Um, uh, and that you have a relate a, a structured relate advisory relationship to um, that they're going to actually provide value as opposed to just be a headshot on on a on a team page. You know, there's there's not yeah. much value in that. Gotcha. No, I, I appreciate that. That's that's fantastic. Um, so when you set out to you know build a product like this, you're three for three for creating a product and then being acquired, which is amazing. Do you go into it with the intention of building it to sell or do you, is that just a, you know, a happy byproduct of building a successful tool? Um, great question. Um, so no, I, you know, I, I think I, one of my 
kind of sayings is founders should be thinking about entrances, not exits. Um, so, you know, founders should only be thinking about how to enter a market. What I found for sure, definitively, without any doubt, and, and by the way, early in my career, I was in M&A. Um, for the first three years of my career, I was in, in investment banking in an M&A, in an M&A role at DoubleClick. And um, uh, the thing I found for sure is if you build a great product that customers love and you have a efficient go-to-market strategy that is able to acquire customers um, and, and grow and you, your business can grow, exits will happen very successfully. Yeah. You'll get plenty of opportunities. What will happen is your competitors will know. They'll be like, yeah. damn, these guys again? You know, uh, first, first they'll ignore you. Uh, then they'll just brush you off as like an ankle biter or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, then they'll start taking you seriously once you, once you flip one of their bigger clients um, or you start getting like, you know, another big deal or two. And the yep. salesperson goes back to their manager and say, we lost these guys again and they're killing us. Yeah. Um, and then what ends up happening is, you know, you, you know, if you, if you, if you steal a big customer or two and they miss their quarter or whatever, and then they start poking around and you got to make a decision early on. Like, um, actually one of my professors at, uh, at, at Harvard business school has, has a question. Uh, he said, do you want to be rich or do you want to be King? Um, and, um, you know, meaning, do you want to, do you want to be, you know, Elon Musk? wants to be king like he, he wants to literally be the head of like like he wants to lead <laughs> an, an electric vehicle revolution right he wants yeah. to kill fossil fuels and and there's no, he is completely mission driven um and um and uh you know is that your goal or do you want to do you want to you know be successful financially um from my perspective uh it's also, look, when I ran Validately, so I started Validately, I didn't take a salary for two years. Wow. And when I started taking a salary, it was way under my expenses. I was burning cash for seven straight years, okay? Hmm. Um, I had almost all of my net worth tied up into Validately. Um, and I also wrote big checks into Validately to keep it alive in the, in the early years when it, was, when it was running on fumes and, and we were you know, struggling to get product market fit. Yeah. So... Um, I believe that if I had not sold Validately in 2019, it'd be worth significantly more now. Um, you know, I didn't know anything about the pandemic, obviously, because it was 2019, but we actually, my understanding is the business, Validately was perfectly positioned to do extremely well during the pandemic because it's remote yeah. tool. It's a remote tool. Makes sense. Um, yeah, it was a low cost remote tool and that was our kind of go to market. And so we would have probably continued to grow very fast and would have been worth more. That said, I have no regrets for selling it. And and at the time, it was the right exit for the team and for myself personally, um, because I had invested heavily in it. Now that I'm, you know, um, you know, had you know was ha- able to have that exit uh, for my new company, you know, probably let it ride, you know, longer and see where we go, you know. Um, but um, you know, exits are, you know, it's. It's, it's a personal decision. Um, yeah. And, you know, the thing is, is like, everyone likes to think about like, oh, the founder made all this money in this exit. Well, yeah. How about like seven years ago, eight years ago when they were like 
you know, living on ramen noodles and burning, <laughs> taking out credit cards and not sleeping because they had no money. Um, you know, where, where was everyone else back then, you know? And um, so, you know, you gotta be, um, you know, but if you, if you build a great product, it, to me, again, it all comes back to the product from my point of view. If you build a great product that customers love, that solves a real need, um, you'll, all the other stuff will take care of itself. And just one more question with that is how'd you keep going through, you know, those seven years where you were, as you said, eating ramen and, you know, having yeah. sleepless nights. So um, I have a philosophy that, that there are two types of successful founders, only two. Mm-hmm. Um, there's um, the Steve Jobs type, the, the Elon Musk type, the true visionaries, like yep. just true visionary, rare human beings, rare, rare human beings. Um, and um, uh, they're quirky, they're odd, they, they probably drop out of school because they, you know, they, they're too smart for everyone. And um, they end up just completely revolutionizing the world. Um, I'm not that person. It's just not me. I'm not a, Mm -hmm. I'm not that, I'm not that type of uh, founder. The second type of successful founder is Rocky Balboa. Okay. Okay. The, the, the fighter who is talented, but not crazy talented, but his greatest talent as you know, the the character's greatest talent is that he just, he just won't go down. He just won't give up. Like it's always one more round, one more round. And no matter what happens, he's going to take a beating from the Russian, you know, the big Russian or, Mm -hmm. or, or, Mr. T or whoever the character is, that's going to beat him up, but he's always there in the last round when the bell rings and say one more round. And, um, and that is what it takes to be a successful entrepreneur because you are going to get so much rejection and so many failures and so many people saying, this is a dumb idea. It's never going to work. You're going to fail. You're not going to be successful. And, you know, fundamentally um, you have to determine whether, you know, your customers are saying that or others are saying that. And um, you just have to find a way to survive in advance and just every, every day I used to say, you know, did I make progress today? Yeah. That's it. I I just need to make progress today. That's all I'm trying to do is make progress today. And then tomorrow I'm trying to make progress tomorrow. Right. Like every single day, just move the ball forward. And I would literally say that to myself out loud when I, you know, when I, when I get home at night, you know, I was exhausted. I'd say, did I make progress today? And I'd say, yeah, actually I, I closed this one deal and I, I moved this other opportunity forward. Okay, yeah. great. Successful day. Now go do it tomorrow. And, um, you know, it's hard. It's really hard. I think the hardest part about being an entrepreneur is the financial stress it puts on your family. Um, and, and yes. most, com- most, most people don't talk about that, but it was, I mean, when I, first started my first company I had a a a newborn baby and um my wife had stopped working but she was she was a high-risk pregnancy and so she had to stop working she was on bed rest and um and then I had a newborn baby I was taking basically no salary for several years and um you know burning all my savings and it was really hard it was very very stressful and yeah. I was more stressed about my own personal save, you know, uh, money than I was about success for the business. But, you know, I believed in it and I, and I, um, 
I just have the kind of Rocky Balboa mentality where I'm just, I'm just literally, you're not going to, I'm just going to keep getting up off the, off the mat and I'm going to keep coming forward. And it doesn't matter how much you punch me in the face. Like it's just going <laughs> to, I'm just going to keep moving forward, you know? Yeah. No, I that's love that. Me. And, that's my, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's fantastic. And I don't want to take up too much of your time. I, I really can't thank you enough for all these insights and for your time. Um, could yeah. you tell us, you know, what's next for you and impact product? Yeah. And yeah. 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 So my next thing is, uh, impact product. It's, um, it's a, um, you know, uh, the kind of core different, it's a product analytics, user analytics tool. The core differentiation is that it's actually something that's so easy to use that literally everyone on the team can use it. And what I found in all my user research is that, uh, analytical tools are super, super, super powerful, but, only a few people within an organization actually use those products. And so there's a lot of people who need to know what's going on in the products with our customers, with our users, who best case scenario can ask someone else to run a report. Um, in most cases, in some cases they don't have anything. And in some cases they can ask someone else to run a report. Um, and the reason why these other products uh, don't get used or implemented is because they're basically designed and created with the persona of the analytical guru in mind. That, that's, that's who they're building for. They're building for this analytical guru who needs everything. They need switches and filters and all these type of ways to slice and dice and find the needle in the haystack. And that's awesome. I'm not dismissing that at all. That's a super powerful, super valuable use case. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of people who look at those user experiences and say, man, I have no idea how to use this product. And all I want to do is answer this basic question. Yeah. How do I answer this basic question? Are people using this thing? How frequently are they using it? Are they using it more than once after they use it, right? Are they getting yeah. stuck somewhere in the process? That's all I want to know. And I don't want all this stuff. And so the, the two big bottlenecks are uh, developer support for instrumentation of all the buttons and links and all that stuff. And the user experience of these dashboard query building heavy analytical tools. And so what we've done with impact product is we said, let's kill both of those. So the way it works is it's a line of JavaScript that you add to your site header and um, you track, we track every click event that happens. There's no configuration needed. There's no developer support needed. If you have Google tag manager, you can even put it live without a developer. If you don't, it's a five minute deploy for a developer, literally JavaScript into the site header. Um, There's no PII capture. Mm -hmm. With the, with the JavaScript, so from a privacy perspective, and there's no impact on page load. But the beauty of that is that everything is tracked at all times. There's no developer support needed. And the second big thing we did is we, we said no, no analytical tool dashboard. So the way our product works is um, it's, a, it's an ex- Chrome extension. So you mm-hmm. open up your own product. You, look, you find the thing that you want to get information on. You mm-hmm. open up our Chrome extension. You click, on the, you click on the button or link in your own product, and we give you metrics there. We're using the heart framework from Google, so happiness, um, engagement, adoption, retention, and task success. Um, okay. And then we have metrics, metrics underneath that. So uh, we can tell you for any button or user flow, if you want to create mm-hmm. a user flow, you just go click, click, click. This, these are the three steps of the user flow. Yep. Um, or maybe there's a couple of steps in between, whatever. Uh, we'll give you task, key task success metrics, number of uniques going through it, uh, conversion rates, time on task, time in between each step. Okay. And what's great about that is, is that if you find a usability problem, 
then you can do your user research on it. You can run your, your qual research. So it really mm -hmm. goes hand in hand and empowers your qual research testing that you can do. Um, but it's so simple. Everyone can use it because all you do is you just open up your product, you click on a button and you get the metrics right there. Adoption yeah. rates, reuse rates, um, and, um, and uh, task success. And so um, th the next piece is we are going to add uh, what we call an identify feature where then you, if you want, that's your choice as a customer, you can then pass uh, uh, customer information to, to us. Okay. So then what we could say is not only did this is the, this is the, this is the fall off from the user flow. Mm -hmm. And by the way, between step three and step four, you had like 30% fall off and it, and it was, it took on average two minutes and 55 seconds between step two and step three or three, three or four. Yeah. Um, but you can download a list of the users who did that. Okay. And so now you could say, all right, great. Let me flip this over to our, our UX research team. And they could reach out to them and do their usability testing with a validate or user zoom, user zoom go. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, and, uh, um, and learn and then fix it. Um, and what we're trying to do is speed up that time because half the teams I spoke to don't have any analytics. The other <laughs> half have to basically send an email or a Slack message to a product manager who will then configure that solution. Then they have to run in, you know, wait for the data to populate. Um, and it's, it's what I hear is anywhere from two to six weeks before they finally get a report on that, that feature. Right. Yeah. And that's just wasted time. So what we can literally do is we can kill that and that whole back and forth. The designer can just open up the product, open up our extension, click, 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 see where the fall off is, yep. download a list of users who, who failed to complete the user flow, reach out to them, do a usability test, fix the problem and go from there. Yeah. And um, that's, that's the vision. That's what we're yeah. trying to do. That's great. And yeah, I, you know, before this call, I installed it on my Squarespace site. It took all of seconds to put on and it was working. Uh, it was fantastic. Yep. Um, and I can relate to all those problems you mentioned working at big companies, trying to get the information that you need and also mentor students. And we do a course on analytics and most of them get very scared when that part of the course comes up and don't want really anything to do with it because it is just kind of makes them go a little fuzzy when they're looking at all the different things you can do in Google analytics. So it's fantastic. Um, where can people go to get so, in touch with you? Oh, go ahead. Yeah. So um, yeah, I, I was just going to add something to that last thing you said was, was, you know, when I did all my user interviews, um, if I'm being very candid, okay. And I, I really don't like want this taken the wrong way because I, I, I deeply believe every human being has strengths and weaknesses and or, or areas where they're strong in and areas where they need developmental in. And that's not a good or bad. It just is. It's just human beings. That's how humans yep. work. Not everyone's great at everything. You know, um, some people True. are great at this and some people are great at that. Um, one of the things I found over and over and over, once I peel back the layers of the onion with, with, in, you know, and I kind of usually happen like at the 25th minute of my user interview, like right towards the end. Yeah. Um, people would tell me that they feel intimidated by these tools. They feel um, frustrated. They feel like uh, almost embarrassed. Like, like, mm -hmm. am I supposed to know what, what, how to interpret this thing? Cause I don't know how to interpret this, but I don't, I want to pretend like I do in front of my teammates. Cause I don't want to look like an idiot, but the reality is I have no idea. And so, um, so, they, but they, because 
they're designed for someone else. They're designed, they have jargon, they have terms that people don't understand what they are. They're structured in a way that if you're not trained in analytics, you look at these things and you're like, I don't even know what this is. I don't know what this means. Yeah. And, um, and so we're designing for, for that persona. And so like one of the things that we did in our design and our product is you create a user flow. Not only do we have a chart for you, but we have a natural language sentence that tells you what is going on in that chart in, in like human speak. Yeah. And so you don't actually have to interpret it because we've interpreted it for you and just telling you, and you can literally copy and paste that into Slack and say, here's what's going on in the flow. Right. Um, and so um, understanding the, the psychology of how, how your target customers feel when they try the other products that are in market yep. is very important. And that, that creates an opportunity for you. Uh, to get in touch with me, Stephen at impactproduct.com. Um, and, um, or you can just go to impactproduct.com and uh, there's a contact button. You can do that. Um, and, uh, or you can reach out to me on LinkedIn, Stephen Cohen, C-O-H-N. Um, and uh, love to chat. Cool. Um, I, honestly, again, I can't thank you enough for taking all this time. I really appreciate it. And I hope you had fun doing this. So, um, awesome. I did. I, I love, I mean, I love talking products and, and startups and, um, yeah. I, I, hopefully my passion for this topic, you know, came out and, um, cause I have a tremendous amount of passion for, um, for this topic and, and building products and design. I've been building technology products for the UX industry for, you know, almost a decade now. Yeah. Um, I said that to someone the other day, I was like, holy cow, it has to almost been, <laughs> wow. Um, and, um, and uh, I love it. It's a great industry. It's a great industry. And the people in, in the design industry are, are just terrific. Um, and I found to be, I, I believe they're the best customers because they're so willing to give feedback. Yeah, you know true. it's amazing. You know, uh, now obviously they have some opinions on like oh, yeah. design, oh, like yeah. stuff that is is you say thank you very much, but like that's, that's not really what I'm asking. You. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to get the, like, the core yeah. yeah, exactly. I I appreciate the yeah, exactly. I appreciate your opinion <laughs> on the font, um, but really what I'm trying to get at is the actual thing. Um, but uh, but in general, I found them to be the, the designers, design researchers. Um, to be just a great customer uh, segment to, to, to build products for um, and very helpful and positive and, um, you know, supportive and, um, you know, great for user research and, and usability testing. Fantastic. Um, yeah, no, this was wonderful. Um, and your passion and your focus absolutely comes through, you know, loud and clear. So <laughs> really great, appreciate great, it. Great, great. And that's the show, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, uh, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. I'll be releasing a show about every other week or so. If you'd like to be a friend of the show, leaving a review and a comment on Apple would be very much appreciated. Share a link to this show with your friends and anyone else who is interested in UX design. Feel free to recommend topics you'd like to hear discussed here. And if you have any questions about design, design careers, or anything else for that matter, you can DM me on my Instagram at userflows.live. Now let's go create. <laughs>